Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on This Is 40, the new Judd Apatow comedy. And joining me in the studio is Chris Wade, audio producer at Slate. Hi, Dana. Hey, how are you doing? Great. Glad to be back on the other side of the glass again. Yeah, what was the last one you did? Um, probably, what was the last big sci-fi franchise? Oh, uh, Total Recall. Oh, that's right. That was a great conversation. Okay, well, this one was actually your idea to come in and talk about This mm-hmm. is 40. I wouldn't have thought of having you in for the simple reason that you're 24. <laughs> but then I thought this could be really interesting, a 24-year-old guy and a woman in her 40s with a kid talking about this movie that's all about middle age. That seems to me pretty overtly like Apatow's attempt to, to grow up as a filmmaker, right? I mean, he's always making films about these young men who can't grow up. That's kind of his his wheelhouse, basically, right, is like the guy, the... Um, the Jason Siegel type, right? The man-child, if you will. Right. And, um, so, and so here he is making a movie essentially about himself, although he casts Paul Rudd as his proxy with his family as his family. His wife, Leslie Mann, playing Debbie, the Paul Rudd character's wife, and his two daughters, Maude and Iris, playing their two daughters. Um, so for me, this was a completely failed experiment, I will say. I went into it with fair amount of hope. I sort of knew that it would be shaggy and sprawling and that it's quite long. It's two and a half hours long or so. Even two hours and 40 minutes, maybe. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's bordering on three hours long, which seems to be the theme of this holiday season, that <laughs> everybody wants us to have burning buns as we come out of their, <laughs> their film screenings. Um, and, but I thought maybe it would justify that length. Funny People, for example, before we get into the fact that you like this more than me, which still, still stuns me, what did you think of Funny People, Apatow's last movie? I'm just now realizing that I never saw Funny People. I guess I was only thinking of his uh, pantheon as being uh, knocked up and 40-year-old virgin, right? which I both you know, think are classic comedies, hilarious. Um, I think Knocked Up has a little more, has a few more problems than 40-Year-Old Virgin, but I think 40-Year-Old Virgin is absolutely brilliant and hilarious all the way through, and I Agree think Knocked Up has. But, but if you look at the trajectory, and you, if you see Funny People, you'll see this, he gets a little bit puffier around the middle each time, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, I can definitely, and from what I know about Funny People, I can assume this to be true, even if it's the missing C in this ABCD right. uh, lineup of kind of that braid of comedy tightness slowly unraveling as he gets more, uh, I don't know, cred, creative control. Right. But in Funny People, I thought, on the whole, that worked. I mean, the mm-hmm. movie has some really embarrassing stretches. Actually, the most embarrassing stretches of Funny People are the ones that resemble This is 40. <laughs> For example, there's a there's a scene in Funny People where Leslie Mann playing his wife and some, I don't know if it's his daughters, but some kids, I think it may be his daughters, put peanut butter on their faces and their dog licks off the peanut butter. And it's like this game and they're doing it with Adam Sandler and it's sort of like, welcome to our house. Here's our peanut butter dog licking game, which I'm sure in real life would be really fun, but it's not really something I want to see on film. It's kind of gross and boring. And this movie to me went down that same kind of home movies route. But first, I haven't let you speak yet. Tell me what you liked about it. Um, I think that you're absolutely right that this is a big, floppy, shaggy, loose movie in all the wrong ways for a comedy. Um, I think what I really liked about it, and I'll get into it in a probably overly specific ways later, uh, is that it does come off to me as a big, weird mess of a film. You know, it's just strange for a comedy. It's tonally all over the place. It's a roller coaster ride. There's n- not a lot of like continuity from one scene to another. Um, it's kind of like a sketch comedy in a way. 
Uh, right, where it's, it's a like, bundle of skits. And actually, in interviews, he said that he came up with moments first. That this was, you know, sort of based on some improv and conversations yeah. with his wife and the cast, and that they basically did it scene by scene, which really shows. So, I mean, that's sort of typical of almost every Hollywood comedy that it's a bundle of of skits, but it's particularly sprawling and loose in this case. Especially because none of the scenes. Even though it's supposed to take place over like a week of this like really tumultuous time in uh, Rudd and Leslie Mann's relationship, it, none of the scenes seem to affect the one that comes after it or draw anything from the one that comes before. Yeah, this was a point you made that I hadn't thought about when I saw it, but I'm sure it would become really clear if I saw it again, is that it supposedly takes place in this delimited time frame, right? Which yeah. presumably would help to structure the movie that both of their birthdays, this husband and wife, Debbie and... Paul, and Pete. Pete, those are their names, yes. So the, the character Debbie and Pete have their birthday in the same week and they traditionally celebrate their birthday with one party. But this year, because they're turning 40, his wife is depressed, she's in denial, and she wants to be 38 forever. So as we open, actually the very first scene we see is them having birthday sex in the shower, yeah. right? And we embark on this week of their birthday. And you're right that there's no way that all the things in this movie that happen could possibly happen in the space of a week. It's, it, it keeps sprawling and, and spiraling into yeah. this larger and larger story. And as far as there is a structure to this movie, I guess you could say it's just like this kind of uh, seemingly endless series of like huge apocalyptic fights between them followed by like sweet reconciliations to certain degrees. And that's where that tonal weirdness comes from. And I guess I'll launch into my ambitious theory that this movie actually has a strong strain of existential nihilism between it. Uh, that there, it kind of veers wildly between these two tones where they're not really affecting each other. And it seems like these people live in like a vacuum of being able to have any determinism about their own emotional lives and so it goes from these scenes of like love is misery and we are locked in this tragic doomed emotional death spiral dragging down the persons that the people that we will end up caring about the most and then veers wildly to a Oh, uh, you know, this love will conquer all panacea of like, oh, as long as we care about each other, we don't need to worry about all these things. And then the very next scene is them, even though they just said, let's never fight. Let's remember this moment forever. You know, the next scene is them fighting over something small and seemingly inconsequential to the point where it seems like they are only there in each other's lives to loathe each other. So do you think this is Apatow's way of trying to say something about the, the tedium and endlessness of marriage? Or is he, I mean, I think he wants to come down on the sentimental side. Come I on, think... he's a sentimental guy. It's a Hollywood movie. It ends on a happy note. It seems to me that he's trying to make this portrait of a great marriage. I mean, I didn't. I neither felt that the emotional high points between them, the dramatic high points rang true, nor did I laugh very much in this movie. I didn't think it was successful, funny, I'm sorry, I didn't think it was successful as a comedy or as a drama. Um, that's, you seem to like this weird polarity. That yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I like about it is that it doesn't. It's it's there's a uniqueness to it, and it's maybe a bad uniqueness, but it's not like any other comedy. And I'm pulling air quotes right now to to kind of signify that it's like barely a comedy, and certainly not a drama in any kind of way because they're like the, it has some of the lowest stakes I think of any movie, and it's like it does really embrace that folks hanging out vibe although i think to its detriment loses the uh sloppy dudes hanging out vibe that gave his earlier movies so much you know fun to them 
Yeah, well, he's very good at writing dudes hanging out, and mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of this here. Although Robert Smigel, playing Paul Rudd's best friend, does get a couple of scenes hanging out with him with that kind of you know spiraling guy dialogue that Apatow's good at writing. Then there's also this kind of um, rotating cast of, of regulars who come in. Jason Segel is cast as a trainer, which is kind of hilarious mm-hmm. given his his own shambling body shape. But he's Leslie Mann's personal trainer, and he appears now and again. As does Chris O'Dowd. As how would you describe his character? Uh, the sarcastic uh, assistant to Paul Rudd's failing record deal. That's right. He works with him. Right. So so they sort of in pop a, in, in and out. In the girls crossover moment where Lena Dunham and Chris O'Dowd are both the employees of Paul Rudd's record company. Yeah. See, to me, that side of of Apatow's rotating repertory cast is, is distracting at this point. You know, when you see Chris O'Dowd and Lena Dunham in a short scene, all you can think about is girls and what are they doing in here and did he fly her in? <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking about the making of story rather than considering them as characters. Um, yeah, well, I think getting back to what I was saying earlier about what I what actually intrigues me about this movie, I think that's like the right word. I don't know if I would actually... It's definitely not a success on the merits I think it wants to be, but I... I just can't for the life of me figure out what Apatow's, like, intent is here, like what I was supposed to take away from this movie, and that leaving me at least questioning the material gives me enough engagement to say that I liked it, you know? But you agree that it feels way too long. Oh, yeah, it's way too long and... And there's a way lot of self indulgence yeah, in there. I mean, we haven't really talked about flabby. some of the, the specific scenes of the peanut butter dog licking variety. Like, there are so many scenes with the girls, and I hate to say it, I'm sure Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann's daughters are lovely people, but they're not actors, particularly the younger one who's only about nine years old or so, and who I really felt was being sort of just trained like a seal to say her lines. And mm-hmm. she gets a lot of those kind of cute kid wisecracks, which are painful even when they're well delivered, you know, that kind of like the kid gets in the kind of semi dirty last wisecrack of the scene, right? Like, I'm going to have some crazy dreams tonight she says to end one scene and I just found those moments really really painful it really did feel like a home movie like here little girl say this line exactly Um, and that and that's also like adding to the big weirdness the uncanniness of it being like an Apatow family film and just kind of like imagining in scenes where Leslie Mann's like putting the daughter to sleep uh, just imagine like Judd Apatow sitting in the corner and being like, oh, no, wait, this is perfect. I'm just going to call the cinematographer, get him over here, we'll just do this one more time before bed, put it in the movie, it'll be great. Right. It's not quite to the, extent, to the extent that it was filmed in their house, but it was filmed on their block, apparently. It was a house oh, really? like seven houses oh, down from them. And I think a part of the reason he did it that way is mm-hmm. he's a family guy and he doesn't want to – he was saying, I'm not going to shoot the next born identity. He told Terry Gross this the other day. I'm not going to you know, be off shooting abroad. So he's trying to, to keep it around the house, which I can respect, but – it just it does start to feel to me like there's a, there's a laziness there. Yeah, and in the same way that girls kind of irks me of Lena Dunham writing uh, all these characters who are just like her and her friends. If her and her friends weren't born to be wild successes, uh, it's kind of weird to see Apatow like writing and indulging this almost like fantasy of what his life would be like if he was not the wild success that he is. That's true. I mean, there, this this movie does arguably take place in a bubble of privilege. These people live very nicely. And a big question is whether they're going to have to sell their house or not, right? Because mm-hmm. Paul Rudd's record company 
his, he runs this small indie record company. And actually, a funny part of his character is that he's this very dour kind of emo indie guy who only only listens to things like Bob Mold, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. tries tries to force his family to rock out to this really downer old time music. Uh, but anyway, his record company is failing is a big part of the story, and they may have to sell their nice house. So as you say, the stakes are pretty low because it's yeah. pretty obvious that they're still going to be able to move into a lovely three bedroom home in Los Angeles somewhere. Yeah, I do love. Uh Paul Rudd's aging indie rocker character, as far as our generational divide goes, that's I see so much of like my tragic future self in Paul Rudd's music guy of like trying to convince the kids that the Pixies are great and then being like, what are you talking about? This is sad people music. <laughs> and actually, that, there was a scene in uh, I Love You Man too, where Paul Rudd, which is Apatow related but not directed from him, by him, uh, where Paul Rudd is trying to describe to uh, Rashida Jones, his wife in that movie, um, his newfound or rekindled passion for playing bass. And that scene like drove me crazy because he, he's effectively saying, wife, I rekindled this passion and this used to be really important to me and I'm into it again and it's giving me a lot of energy in life that I didn't have before and I want to share it with you. And throughout that entire scene, Rashida Jones is going, no, stop it. You're being annoying. Stop it. I don't care. Stop it. And it was kind of the same thing of him being like, this is what, you know, debaser which he sings or play, tries to play to the family, and, I, and This Is 40 is one of my all-time favorite songs. And him, that undercurrent of him being like, this is the music I love, and I'm trying to share it with you, family, and Leslie Mann, and the kids being like, no, stop it. This is dumb. <laughs> stop it. We don't care. Your music is bad. And I can I mean, just see myself in the future being like, nobody's going to care about the Pixies. A couple of responses to that. For one thing, once again, I'm amazed that you identify with this movie, including some of the middle, midlife crisis jokes, more than I do. And, and, and secondly, just that I Love You, Man is a far, far better film than This Is 40, right? It's more compact. It's modest. It tells a simple story. And it's got that guy humor. Paul Red is hilarious in I Love You, Man. And he doesn't really get a chance to bust out and do his thing here because he's literally domesticated there's a conflict in i love you man we haven't even talked about what is the central conflict in this movie which doesn't even kick in until what like this minute 70 or something are you talking about when she gets pregnant yeah which yeah is... i guess to the extent there's a conflict i mean he's losing his business right which is the thing that's happening in slow motion the entire movie so that's barely barely counts as a conflict and oh somebody is stealing from her store this is more like a tv series right where there's like <laughs> periodic problems that then sort of go away somebody is stealing from her little boutique that she runs and it turns out she thinks the entire time that it's megan fox who's her super sexy boutique employee and it turns out it's this other employee which led to a scene that i thought was just like a complete ridiculous throwaway of oh that, i thought that, that scene was hilarious with charlene yee and she is very funny but that just seemed like one of the many apatow moments where he gets a comedian who has a shtick and he says here do your shtick and we'll work it into the movie well I, I mean uh, what did you think of megan fox in this role um, I thought that Megan Fox was actually great in this movie, and I actually like Megan Fox. Um, she not just in that way. No, not just <laughs> that way. I think she's a, she's a pretty good performer and a pretty. I, I appreciate that she appears to be uh, you know self uh, aware of. Her, her what is effectively hilarious hotness did you see movie. jennifer's body i did not but i would love to see jennifer's totally body. worth seeing yeah i mean it's, it is the comic the comic hottie and she does it really kind of comic horror hottie and she yeah. does it really well um and as uh as my roommate pointed out as we were watching it together it's kind of funny as this movie is sagging at the beginning of its third act how much of a bolt of adrenaline to everybody's relationships uh, it can be just to like throw a almost supernaturally attractive woman in a bikini and just like throw her into the mix and have her hanging out with these like lame dudes. Uh, and it really did like she appears as a shop employee and she goes out clubbing with Leslie Mann and kind of gets drawn in 
to be a trusted member of their family and shows up at Paul Rudd's birthday party, 40th birthday party, which is a pool party in a bikini. And it's just like everybody suddenly has some kind of business that they can like advance their character through reacting to her hilarious hotness. Right. Yeah, that is kind of well done. And it's nice that she wasn't used as, you know, a temptation for an affair with Paul Rudd. That would have been so predictable. And although he does ogle her, you know, at one point on a ladder at the at the boutique, she doesn't become that predictable of a plot pawn. And also, like, as Leslie Mann literally says in the movie, he wouldn't know what to do with her. Or about about her. Right. She's too far out of his league, although yeah. strangely she does end up hooking up with Jason Siegel. Yet yeah. another of those Apatow connections where it's like the guys just luck out so hard. <laughs> and with zero effort. <laughs> right. Um, okay, hold on a second. I want to hear more about that, but we need to take a break for a word from our sponsor. The Spoiler Special is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They offer more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're hearing us on now. And they have a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And we were searching Audible for something apropos of our discussion of Apatow, and his name came up as an editor of a collection of comedy skits, which actually is a lot like what This is 40 is like, right? So he got a bunch of his comedy buddies together. Actually, I don't know if he was behind the whole project, but he did write the introduction for Care to Make Love in That Gross Little Space Between Cars, a Believer book of advice. So this was put out by the publication The Believer with Judd Apatow as the introducer. Other contributors include comedians like Patton Oswalt, Zach Galifianakis, Amy Sedaris, Bob Saget. It seems like a, a really good connection in Essentially, I think it's life advice, satirical life advice from a bunch of of stand-up comics. And again, you can find that or any one of 100,000 other titles at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. All right, so back to This is 40. Um, The funniest stretch of the movie to me is that scene with Leslie Mann confronts Charlene Yee about stealing from the store. And Charlene Yee basically has like a psychotic breakdown, uh, which I thought was very funny. And then – but that's like the part of the tonal weirdness. It's like for the – you know, the first 120 minutes of this movie, there she's like, somebody's stealing from our store, somebody's stealing from this store. She has this one incredibly silly, like one of the silliest scenes in the movie with Charlene Yee. And then it's Where never... she's speaking in exorcist voices yeah, and things and like that. It's... See, by that time I had lost patience with the movie and I was really annoyed with that scene. I just thought, stop it, Judd Apatow. Yes, you have funny friends. I know you have funny friends. You don't need to film all their sticks and string them together into a three-hour non-narrative <laughs> <laughs> avant-garde Yeah, comedy. so like she, she has a scene... That plot is then resolved, I guess, and they move on to the next scene, which is Melissa McCarthy playing a parent of a kid who has made fun of one of their kids on Facebook, and both uh, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann at different times confronted Melissa McCarthy and her kid about this on behalf of their kid. Melissa McCarthy then basically brings them to their kid's principal and explodes on them in just a spiraling filthy diatribe of parental anger, which I thought was very funny. That's a very funny improv scene. And if you stay for the credits, oh, did yeah. you see? There's there's a lot of outtakes of, of her different improvs of that didn't make like it in that are super funny. Yeah, I but, mean, And all of this stuff feels like it's a sketchboard for yeah. a movie. It, it could all come together into a movie. And, and Melissa McCarthy is certainly great at that kind of scene. But once again, it was like it was not well integrated. So that yeah, problem exactly. ends. It's and like, no, so we haven't even gotten to the pregnancy yet. So to the extent that there is like an actual problem, it's that Leslie Mann finds out she didn't think she could get pregnant because of some medical problem. Then it turns out to her surprise that she's pregnant. You're right. It's a good, I don't know, 75 minutes into the movie or something that she discovers that. And so then there's two problems happening at once because his business has just almost definitively failed. The the Graham Parker record that he's tried to release has sold 612 (laughs) copies. That's kind of a funny little cameo that Graham Parker does. Much like I Love You Man's weird obsession with Rush. 
this movie has a weird obsession with Graham Parker. Yeah, I feel like a lot of this is probably just Jud- Judd Apatow's musical like taste being aired collection. out. Like he's taking off the mothballs of his CD collection. But that's that's kind of a funny subplot. But so that's that's kind of happening simultaneously. So they're both getting broker and broker and they have another kid on the way. This was a very annoying moment of the movie to me because of the absolute refusal to even acknowledge that abortion would be any possibility. It's not me saying like the character should get rid of the baby, but it made me think of Knocked Up Again where at least we had the Schmushmorshin reference, yeah. right? There's a scene where Joe Hill sort of obliquely refers to the possibility that Catherine Heigl and, might not have the baby. In this movie, in a scenario where it would be completely logical that you would at least discuss that as a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Two 40-year-old people, upper middle class, educated, secular, clearly not involved in any kind of like religious group. I mean, why would they not discuss that as a possibility if there's a baby they don't want and can't afford? Uh, yeah. And talk about bubble privilege. I mean, that's kind of irksome in general because it's almost like an implication of like, oh, we we are too nice to even think to, to consider that it's like our our lives are too upper middle class that that's like not even something that would that would be discussed. Well, that's funny. I didn't think of it as a class thing at all. I really just thought of it as almost just just Hollywood cowardice on Judd Apatow's part. Like it just seems like if he's trying to make an honest movie, right? It's this movie that's supposed to be all honest. It's all into its own honesty, and there's all these like gr- gross out honesty, right? Like the scene where on, on the to- on your iPad on the toilet. Yeah, honesty. completely. Except they're supposed to be having these conversations on the toilet. There's this really gross, gross out scene where Paul Rudd is trying to figure out what some kind of like growth, growth his on his anus. anus is, and he has like a mirror up to it, <laughs> and Leslie Mann's supposed to look at it and tell him what it is, and turns that it's a hemorrhoid that scene was completely disgusting and unfunny I thought I yeah. just didn't think it added anything to the movie but anyway if that's the gambit if it's like we're laying it all out then for God's sake two people who are about to have a child that's 10 years younger than their other children that they're not sure they want aren't going to even float that possibility yeah and I think that that is the the weirdness that I'm kind of part, a part of the weirdness that I'm kind of into and also the ultimate failure of this is that you can't really say that this film is uh, sound and fury signifying nothing. It's more like hemming and hawing signifying nothing. It's like each scene raises like one, yeah, a sketch of this relationship that is like fairly honest and fairly real, but nothing points to any larger meaning in the end. So the takeaway is like and it ends, and then you die. Yeah, it, you it ends on a happy scene, but if it did, if it went one scene more to right. the to, <laughs> as the pattern of the movie suggests of a scene where they reconciled and things are going to be okay. And also the ending is just like way too tidy. It's like, uh, you know, the final, that final happy scene is like, well, I guess we'll sell the house and get less than its value, but then we'll have this kid and it'll be fine. Oh, and then your record label will just sign Ryan Adams. That'll be great. Right. And it's just oh, like that's right. Everything. They go to see Ryan Adams and there's this implication that he's going to sign him. It's true. Maybe this is 41 would be like, yeah. now we're, we're broke with a kid we don't want. And like, <laughs> and Ryan Adams laughed in and his And four face. scenes earlier in one of their reconciling moments, uh, Leslie Mann being like, you know what the problem is? We have issues with our fathers. And three scenes later, the the issues with their fathers are totally resolved. Oh, yeah. Resolved. We haven't even talked about the, the, that generational gap. So there's there's two important fathers in the movie. John Lithgow plays Leslie Mann's father, who's this very waspy, removed, successful spinal surgeon. I think he's As, amazing, John Lithgow, in that part. Yeah. He, John Lithgow's great. Uh, he's just He totally gets that kind of icy, closed-off <laughs> man, you know, who's sort of though, trying, but he doesn't my, know what it is my, to try. Uh, my roommate and watching partner for this movie said, and I think accurately, uh, he looks like a thumb. 
<laughs> I thought he kind of looked like a rag doll with like beady button eyes in it, but he I is d- great. I feel in the like part. he always plays warm, twinkly characters, yeah. right? And it's very rare that you see him play somebody completely buttoned up like that. Yeah. Um. So so he was really good, and then Albert Brooks plays Paul Rudd's father, who's also a very funny character. He's mm-hmm. this mooch who's been dependent, financially dependent on his son for years, and Paul Rudd is secretly filing him this money. And so both of those actors were really well cast. But what did you think? What were the fathers doing in there? Um. I mean, they were. Providing like two, I guess like two foils for this character. Like Leslie Mann wants to be this hyper involved, like perfect mom type thing, and she has this father who's been absent her entire life. That she has this, you know, I think she, she, you know, it's implied that she doesn't really want to acknowledge it, but she has this, you know, removal abandonment issue with him. Whereas Albert Brooks, Paul Rudd's father, uh, in what I would argue is more of the existential nihilism of this uh, movie, is a guy who's like a very self acknowledged lay about only interested in his like personal satisfaction in life who's gotten with this younger woman in his autumn years who really wanted a kid so he went to a fertility clinic to try to satisfy her and ended up getting not just one but three twins or three a set of triplets that he appears to have very little interest in caring for beyond keep making sure that his wife is happy and it's kind of part of that overall trend of, like, everything we try to do, nothing will ever turn out right. Right. And furthermore, we'll never learn nor care for, care to grow from our mistakes is, like, the takeaway from Albert Brooks. I guess so. But then that, once again, that kind of bleakness, that bleak vision of family life is a very strange mix, mixture with the sentimentality that crops up yeah, every exactly. scene or two. And in the end, Albert Brooks is kind of seen as this really nice grandpa because unlike the John Lithgow character, who also eventually comes around and becomes a nice grandpa, but much earlier By watching him, the entirety of Albert Lost Brooks in a Day. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, I think he was that, just and that watch time, the end. That's time compression is also like that existential like t- like thing is that time in the same way that that you know it's all supposed to set in a week, but these plots move incredibly slowly and seem to never like to be strung out forever without any progress. No, you're but right, and there's all, that like, whole so, getaway but when they still, suddenly like, so much stuff happening. They go to Malibu for a night in the middle of this like five day period and like get stoned on uh, weed cookies elliptically referenced to be given to them by. Uh, Seth Rogen's character from Knocked Up. See, once again, see, that was a scene. Wasn't there a scene in Knocked Up where people were stoned in a hotel room? Yeah. And that was a oh, much a funnier Paul Rudd scene. scene. Yeah, that it scene was, was great Rudd with the Seth chairs. Rogen? Oh, yeah, that scene's hilarious. And this was basically the same joke. But once again, I just it was the laziest written scene ever. Yeah. It was basically like how many room service stoned people jokes can we, can we come up with sort of visual gags and just string them together in this just non-narrative mm-hmm. I don't know I mean I really I feel like I'm, I want to give Judd Apatow a bad grade for this movie so he'll try harder <laughs> next time I'm not giving up on him I actually still think I'd be interested to see what he does next but I hope he doesn't go any farther up his own ass yeah so the ending of the movie is finally the birthday party, the long-awaited birthday party that somehow that took forever and also somehow only forty-eight took like, hours right, away, five months yet one week from the beginning of the movie, and uh, and it's sort of the moment that all this stuff comes together, right? It's um it's the Megan Fox Jason Siegel connection is made. The grandfathers kind of reconcile with their children and and their the children's bomb is children. finally dropped. Leslie Mann's been hiding her pregnancy from Paul Rudd. Oh, that's uh, right. It's dropped in a very oddball way that just another party guest who knows about it happens to mention it. And he kind of goes crazy and goes off biking and eventually runs into a car door and Leslie Mann kind of comes and saves him. Uh, ends up in a another Apitalian trope. Ends up in a touching scene, touching comedic scene in a hospital, um, which is where they decide to be in love in the final scene. Um and go to that Ryan Adams concert where Paul Rudd is just going to sign him. Um, but that that's what 
really bothers me or not bothers me, interests me about it that and I think supports that nihilism to it is that it ends on a happy note. But if we follow the pattern of the movie, theoretically, the next scene is them right back at bickering and telling each other that, you know, they're only together because of the kids and that they loathe everything about each other. And then the scene after that will be a happy one. And they're locked in this eternal struggle of never learning and only causing each other mis- misery or some sort of deluded false happiness. So the question is, is that some sort of incredibly wise, <laughs> deep, kind of long, long view that, that Judd Apatow's taking? Or is that just his movie being so badly structured that his happy ending doesn't work? Yeah. I mean, I think you pointed out earlier that there's there are like these dueling ideas or the these dueling feelings of Apatow trying really, really hard to be really sincere and earnest and truthful and almost artistic about his honesty, about what relationships are like, wrapped up in this incredibly lazy, lazily structured movie. And there's that cognitive dissonance about being unable to find, figure out what the author is intending, that running through the entire film... I just I love that you found that as kind of energetically destabilizing, whereas I just found it deadeningly boring. Yeah, well, that's also my my milieu of movie watching is that I really enjoy things that you can kind of see bursting at the seams, and I think you can see this movie bursting at the seams. It is. It's a big weird mess, and I do like big weird messes. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that, then you're recommending it conditionally for people who like big weird messes. Yeah, and I think that anybody who's watched all of Apatow's movies and is like interested in what he has to say about the modern world will find it at least interesting, worth watching. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say if you want to see an Apatowian big weird mess, I would recommend Funny People over this because it's just darker and edgier and has more actual laughs in it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that Adam Sandler, when well used, the the using of Adam Sandler against type was more interesting than any of the casting in this movie, which is all basically just sort of plugging the the stock actors into their roles. More than uh, another film plugging Paul Rudd into the increasingly boring straight man role that he has been narrowing, narrowing, narrowing in on uh, since, since Clueless, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get sick of Paul Rudd. I love him in that role. Somebody at some point called him the new Jack Lemmon, and I think that's kind of the perfect designation for him. He's totally Jack Lemony in his kind of compact size and his kind of, you know, his, mm-hmm. his very contained, dry wit. I, I love love Paul Rudd, but he really is getting over-plugged yeah, into roles like this. The angry this. sad sack. As for Leslie Mann, for. I hate to say it, but I just I don't think Leslie Mann is that funny. This And this movie is, if there's a main character of Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann, the main character is Leslie Mann, and this movie is... The Agony and Ecstasy of Leslie Mann, which is weird because, you know, she's his wife in real life and it's her kids that she's interacting with. So there's something very uncanny about seeing her as this like laboring to be the right person at all times and struggling against her instincts and her emotions to do the right thing for her relationship but just like not be, or being too flawed and overcoming. It's very – Like hagiographic hey, of yeah, her, right? Yeah, it is of like her struggles and what she has to go through um, while Paul Rudd is just trying, just trying to get by, man. Just trying to get this Graham Parker album sold so he can put food on the table for his family and not get yelled at too much and maybe influence some love of the Pixies. 
Yeah, it's a very, very weird thing to do. I mean, to plug somebody else in for yourself and basically film your home life. I mean, it starts to, when you think about it, it starts to seem like this kind of cool avant-garde project where it's like a little bit Lena Dunham-ish, but I think Lena Dunham is doing it a lot better on girls than Judd Apatow just did it in this movie. And maybe it's just because it's compact. She only has 25 minutes a week to, to do her little journal of, you know, what's happening in her life, whereas Judd Apatow has a big old sprawling tome that he's filling up. <laughs> well, maybe this movie would be better if it was just pushed towards... The weirdness that I like in it, and instead of a big glossy Hollywood movie, it was just tons and tons of thirty-five millimeter footage shot of uh, Apatow by Apatow himself, uh, with Rudd like living on his couch in his house, just interacting with his family in like a very uh, verite style. Right. Maybe she's that just, is the movie that this movie wants to be, like a grimy social realist kind yeah. of like Samuel Beckett kind of grimness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the movie does kind of, you're right, in its moments that are the most interesting, it does strain toward that sort of like, I can't go on, I'll go on kind of <laughs> kind of thing, right? But then but then it just turns into something too glossy and I don't know. All right, see it if see it if you if you like Chris Wade's opinion. Don't see it if you like mine. <laughs> and we all know we're here in the end for you. I'm just throwing the curveball. I'm just playing the bejeweled on the toilet. <laughs> what can I say? This is 24. All right, Chris, well, please come in and spoil another movie with me soon. This was great. The next big weird mess. All right. Our producer was Chris Wade, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.